0: If you turn with me actually to the book of Revelation chapter 2... And I want to look together here in, in Revelation chapter 2 at uh, one of the seven churches that Jesus uh, wrote, if you would, a letter to. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 give to us these letters that Jesus wrote uh, to seven different churches. And again, uh, we're not going to go real in-depth tonight. It's really kind of just something particular in this section that I want to kind of emphasize that's upon my heart. And that really sort of zeroes in on, on the real crux of this letter and the thing Jesus addressed for this particular church and a group of Christians where he says there in verse 4 and 5, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. And uh, kind of what I want to address tonight as we look certainly through this letter together is just that as we get ready to share communion together, we can kind of examine our hearts uh, in regards to the fact that here we find Jesus addressing the sin, if you would, of diminishing love towards him, uh, of a lack of passion in our hearts towards Jesus relationally and uh, letting go of that passion maybe that we once had for Christ or perhaps maybe even never uh, having really attained to that real passion that Jesus is worthy of. And I thought it would be a fitting thing to kind of discuss and and talk about together as we prepare our hearts for communion tonight. Having just finished the book of Deuteronomy, uh, certainly there are a lot of great themes, but in the book of Deuteronomy, nine times we were commanded or instructed really to love the Lord. That statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that we know, of course, from the New Testament uh, that Jesus made reference to comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And nine different times in that book, there is this command, there's this instruction from God to the people to love the lord that that was important to god emphasizing relationship and uh you know jesus himself of course we know in the new testament you remember on one occasion they came to jesus and they asked him which is the greatest commandment or which is the first commandment the idea again being which commandment is the absolute first in priority, or of all the commandments, hundreds that there were, tell us, you know, all these commandments, which is of first importance, which is the greatest commandment of all, and of course, most of us know that Jesus answered that, quoting Deuteronomy 6, saying, This is what it is, you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength again the thing that jesus zeroed in on above all other things there were lots of different commandments and all those commandments did matter to god but jesus said on this hang all the law and the prophets this is the centrality of the matter that you would just love the lord with all of your being that you would love him with your heart and your emotions that you love him with your soul the innermost part of all your being that you would use your mind to love him and what you fill your mind with and your strength and your vitality and that everything in your being you would just seek to to love the lord with that he would have that level of priority and again the idea there being that there would just be this passionate love that we would have as people towards the lord in our lives Uh, Which in a lot of ways makes me understand here perhaps why the thing that Jesus zeroes in on with this particular group of believers in the church of Ephesus in that day as we see here in Revelation chapter 2 is he says of all the other things and I'm certain because they're not perfect like us. There were probably numerous things in that church he could have put his finger on and said, I have this against you and and this I'm not pleased with and, and that I'm not particularly very happy about. But the thing that Jesus really put their focus upon and he said, the thing that matters to me most is I am most concerned or you might even go so far to say, I'm most offended by your lack of love for me that this is what I have against you. This is the thing that I have against you relationally more than anything else is that your love for me has diminished. I don't care that you do all kinds of great works. I don't care that you dot your I's and cross your T's and that you don't do certain things that other people do. And, and I mean, they were doing a lot of wonderful things, but Jesus said, the thing that I find most offensive is that your love for me is diminished. Your love for me, your passion, your excitement, your enthusiasm, it's not what it once was and really that was a central heart issue and from that everything flowed out of that and Jesus understood that. It's what Proverbs says in chapter 4, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow all the issues of life. Uh, and if our heart is not in the right place, it then puts out polluted streams and unhealthy streams to all the other things that we do and ultimately can cause, in a sense, spiritual heart attack, which can result in a real death and a diminishing of what our spiritual life and relationship is supposed to be. So, uh, again, we don't want to be real, real depth, in depth this evening. We're not studying the book of Revelation right now. But, again, these letters, Revelation 2 and 3, seven different letters, Jesus addresses to churches that were literal churches in that day. Uh, Let's just read through verses one through seven to kind of give you a sense of what's here. Jesus says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So uh, here we get the first of seven letters that Jesus writes to literal churches there, in the area of Asia Minor, it seems Ephesus was sort of the predominant or primary church from which even some of these other churches uh, sprung off of in that particular area. Ephesus is probably the church we're a little more familiar with because it was more predominant in the sense that we actually have a letter in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. And understand, when you read these seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that Jesus wrote to these churches, in a sense, you could almost say maybe three basically ways you could draw application from them. First of all, they were written to literal churches, historical churches in that day. So Jesus was writing to a specific literal church, the, the church of Ephesus here in this first letter, which was founded by Paul, Acts chapters 18 through 20. We have a New Testament letter written to them. It's been about 30 or so plus years since their existence came into being, which kind of gives you an idea that where this church is at at this point is Jesus is writing to it. But all of these churches were literal historical churches. Uh, Secondly, I think another way you can apply these seven letters as you study them and read through them together is I think they all apply in a sense to all churches right now presently. Now, was there more than seven churches in existence in that day when Jesus wrote those letters? Of course there was. There were probably hundreds of churches, perhaps, at that time. But Jesus, it seems, selectively chose seven different churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, Pergamus. And I think there was something very intentional in that. I think from Jesus' perspective, those seven that he addressed were sort of a a, a complete. Remember, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And they sort of gave a complete representation uh, of, if you would, the conditions that a church could be in at any given time. And I think from Jesus' perspective, in a sense, he's saying probably at any given time, a local church a congregation can read one of these letters and say lord kind of where are we at right now are we kind of where the church of ephesus is are we kind of where pergamos is are we where laodicea is in a sense we can do a diagnosis as a church and a lot of times these letters are a good representation of different types of churches where they're at and their condition and their status and their kind of spiritual uh state at that time and their relationship with the lord again in all the letters jesus says as we saw there in verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says, notice to the churches, plural. So these letters are very helpful in that sense. They help us understand what matters to Jesus in a church. Uh, they help us to understand who Jesus is supposed to be to the church. All these letters have a pattern in them where Jesus commends the church for certain things. This I see you're doing, you're doing well, and I commend you for this. And and he sort of, you know, gives them his, uh, you know, boy, and I'm proud of you for these things. I'm, I'm glad to see that. But then in the letters as well, Jesus at times also gives a word of correction. It says, nevertheless, this is something that you're doing that I'm not real happy about and that I would like you to adjust or to repent of or to correct in your midst. And he puts his finger on things as he diagnoses the state and condition of these different congregations and says, listen, I'm the head of the church and uh, this is something that's on my mind that I see among you that I'm not real pleased about, that I would like to change or or adjust in a sense. And all these local fellowships as well receive a promise in, in regards to their situation they're facing. So they're great letters to read, to diagnose and to evaluate from a congregational perspective But there are also letters, and this is more of what I want to say for our hearts as we evaluate ourselves this evening, there are also letters that each believer can read and draw something from personally. And again, if I can draw your attention to verse seven, the repeated statement in all seven letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, tells us, number one, that Jesus is always speaking to the church. We need to have our ears open and listen. But I want you to notice churches don't have ears. People have ears, right? He says there, notice he, that's an individual who has an ear that's singular. Let him personal pronoun hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. So there are messages indeed that Jesus wants to give to a church collectively maybe it's a word of prophecy in a meeting or it's something that comes through the teaching of the word of God a word of knowledge a word of wisdom you know instruction by the spirit of God through the 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 teaching gift and so forth but it also shows us that there's a personal word in the singular sense one man said this churches are made up of individuals and it's the individuals who usually determine the spiritual life of the assembly there's great truth to that churches yes we exist collectively and sometimes we need to address things collectively our family life our condition but churches are also made up of individual christians and usually the state and spiritual condition of individual christians determines oftentimes the spiritual life of the assembly as a whole so there's always a personal application that we can draw from these things and that's kind of how i want to Sort of look at this and, and draw what things the Lord would say to us tonight as we prepare our hearts collectively but also individually to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we remember Jesus uh, in the elements of communion. So, again, if you draw your attention back with me to verse 1, let's just sort of work through this a little bit together. Jesus begins by addressing this church, saying, To the angel of the church, of Ephesus again that word angel there it's it's uh, uh, the term in the greek angel literally speaks of a messenger so uh, it's possible that this could refer to a specific angel assigned to the church but it seems that term oftentimes when you study it in the greek is used many times to refer to a messenger also in the personal sense. So this could be the term that's used here, a reference more that it's a letter written to the pastor of Ephesus, to the leader, the messenger, the one who would be vocal. And that would seem to make sense if you think practically, because typically uh, you could address an angel for the church, but it would be a lot more wise if you have a message to get to the congregation, to give it through the human messenger, that's going to be speaking as God's messenger and God's voice piece on behalf, the pastor or the teacher or so forth, uh, when he wants to say something. And he says, write these things. These things says he who has the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So notice Jesus at the beginning of each of these letters, it's again, it's a pattern, First thing he does is he reveals himself, something about himself. And if you read chapter 1, or you're familiar. In chapter 1, John has this revelation of the glorified Christ. And a lot of the things that John sees as he turns and he sees Jesus, a lot of those things are then taken and reiterated by Jesus directly in each one of these letters to reveal aspects about the nature of Christ and the person of Christ and to give a little more of a revelation of who he is, an unveiling of Christ. That's what this book is about. It's not just an unveiling of prophecy. It's an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ more than anything else the book of Revelation is intended to be. So here Jesus in verse one reveals himself, notice, as personally and directly involved in number one, church life and affairs, and secondarily that he is personally and directly involved in times of the assembly among christians we see in verse 1 there jesus it says holding something in his hand and walking in the midst of these seven golden lampstands so what are these stars and again what the stars do they give light or illumination they light the way And he's holding stars in his hand and he's walking in the midst of golden lampstands. Well, it sounds symbolic. What does it mean? Well, watch how complicated this is. Look up just one verse above at the end of chapter one. We read here the mystery, the unveiling, if you would, of the look at this seven stars. Jesus says, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are, here you go, the angels of the seven churches or again, the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So what we see here in verse one is Jesus reveals himself as personally and directly involved in church life affairs In the sense that we see Jesus in verse 1 here holding the seven stars in his right hand. So he's holding the messengers of the churches, the, the pastors, the leadership, those who would speak on behalf of the Lord. And we're told that's who that is in his right hand that he's got a hold of. And then it says Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands. It shows Jesus walking in the midst of his church. So it gives to us there very clear indication of exactly what Jesus is referring to here in verse one. The lamp stands is a reference to the churches. The stars in his hand are a reference to the messengers or the leaders in the churches. And I have to just say this in connection to that, what we see there, do you take notice that the best way to understand the Bible is the Bible? (laughs) The best way to understand what the Bible says is to look at the Bible, is to read the bible the best commentary on scripture is scripture the best way to become more familiar with the bible is to get to know the bible i wonder what that means i want to know the bible better here's the answer get to know the bible better sometimes i hear people say i read the bible it doesn't make sense to me and so i just i give up no just keep reading just keep reading. It's like Dory with just keep swimming, right? It's in my mind. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep reading the word of God. And the amazing thing is that as you do that, you know this, some of you, others of you can testify. As you read the scripture, it's amazing how what's it? you start to connect dots. And you remember what you read here. Oh, and so yeah, I see all that in the Old Testament. goes with this in the New Testament. And all of a sudden, things start to become more clear, You start to connect dots. You begin to be able to understand the meaning of things. And you become familiar with what God's trying to say in his word because you're familiar with the scripture. And it's the same way. Let me say this in connection. The best way to know the voice of God is to know the word of God. Because whenever God speaks and however he may choose to speak to you in your life, he always is going to speak consistent with the word of God. So whether it's his truths or his promises or the things that he says that are sin or that he is displeased with or words of correction, whenever God testifies to your heart, speaking in the language of the human heart, to you and to me, he's always going to speak consistent with what his word says all throughout. So as you get more familiar with the word of God and what God's word says, you're going to become more familiar and your antenna is going to become more in tune with, I think God's speaking to me right now. Because what I sense God saying to me are the same kind of things that God says in his written word. And you're going to be able to sense when you're hearing the voice of God more clearly. It's the same way in relationships. As you get to know a person and you become more familiar and acquainted with a person as you get to know them, you can begin to kind of read them. You know how that works? You, you know, you've to read your spouse or you can kind of interpret what your kids kind of meant by that, even just by knowing their temperaments or whatever. And, and be, the more you get familiar with a person, it's the same way with the word of God. And here we get this beautiful analogy of that before us and shows us, and I love the picture there of Jesus, verse one, walking in the midst of the church jesus walking it says right in the midst of his church let me just say it's a sidelight but it would go in a sense horrible to not say such if you find no other reason to go to the church and to go and to assemble with the church there's your reason because jesus reveals himself walking in the midst of his churches all seven of those churches and some of them, Jesus didn't have anything good to say about them. But he's walking in their midst. He wants to be a part of the people of God when they assemble, even if they're doing really bad, even so much so that Jesus is so desperate to want to be with the church. In one letter, we find him doing what? Standing outside the church, knocking on the door, saying, can I come back in and be a part of the worship meeting? You got this and that, bells and whistles and everything else. Can I be a part of the worship meeting? I'd like to participate in that if you don't mind. But Jesus wants to be with the church. So guard your heart against and please be an advocate to speak up to those who claim the name of Christ, who say they're Christians but say they don't need the church. Jesus goes to the church. If you want to follow Jesus, you're with his people because he's with his people. That's what he does. And I don't know about you, but I love this. This is a beautiful thing to realize because I'm really glad to know that Jesus is present with us. Whenever his people assemble, he is directly and personally in the midst. He's among us. The scripture assures us of that. Jesus says in other places, whenever even two or three, two or three gather in my name, I'm there in the midst. If two people get together to, to pray or to sing worship songs or study the Bible, three people get together to pray or Jesus says, "I show up. I show up to those meetings the same way I do when 200 people, 300 people, I'm in the midst. Jesus assembles when his people assemble and it's great to know that the Lord is among us and and I have to say, therefore, how then should that affect us? If we know that when the church assembles, Jesus is walking in our midst, he's with us, how should that affect us? Well, I think it should very clearly cause us to realize that our chief goal should be to honor his presence. That should be our heart when we assemble that we want to honor the presence of the Lord. And let me say it this way. Always remember, we are not just having if you would a meeting for Jesus. We're meeting with Jesus. And there's a very big difference. When we come together to have a worship service or a church service, we're not just having we're, we're not just holding a meeting for Jesus. Like again, like, like it's a political convention in the representation of this party or this person where Jesus is the mascot of the church and some churches sadly almost kind of give that impression like Jesus is the mascot. But really it's about the winsome presenter and the great music and the bells and all, and all the programs and, and, and Jesus gets lost in all of that. We're not having a meeting for Jesus with him as the mascot. We're meeting with Jesus. That truly is what the intentional purpose is of the church is supposed to be. He's in our midst. His presence is among us. And we need to realize that when we're here, we're here because he wants to manifest himself among us. He wants to reveal himself. And that should influence our intentions and our activities when we come for a church gathering. If you just come to participate because you think it's a meeting for Jesus, you're missing the whole point. And it's probably why you don't enjoy church. It's probably why you don't get anything out of it. Because you just think this is just a meeting for for jesus instead of no this is a time to meet with jesus because jesus is literally here and therefore if he's here i want to worship him i want to sing directly to him i want to pray and seek his face i want to hear his voice because he's here and and if he's here then i want to hear if he has something to say to me And if he's here, then then I want to receive help from him in ministry because I see a Jesus that helped crippled people and helped blind people and, and did things when people were grieving and mourning and Jesus hasn't changed. So if he's walking in our midst, though he's not bodily, but he's here by his spirit, I believe he still wants to do that kind of stuff. So, Lord, do you want to help me? I have needs in my life. We have issues. Help us with these things. And, and Lord, we, we want to serve for you. And, and you're here. So is there somebody you want me to be your hands or your feet or your mouth to, to go over to this person and to minister on your behalf? So, again, just a very, very beautiful and wonderful reminder. This picture Jesus reveals himself, verse 1, as being in the midst of his people, in the midst of the church. He then says, verse two and three, giving a commendation to this particular church. Look at it, he says, I know your works, your labor and patience that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars and you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now that statement there, verse two and three, begins with in verse two, I know your works. That's a repeated refrain throughout all seven letters every church jesus again and keep in mind because he's with his church right he just said i'm in the midst of the churches walking in the midst of the churches because he's with his church he knows everything that's going on in his church he sees everything that's happening and on top of that he not only knows our activities, he knows the reasons why we do such. For those of us who serve, he knows our motives for how we serve and why we serve. And, and he knows our personal condition as worshippers when we assemble. He says, I know. I know all the works and activities. I know. I'm fully acquainted with everything that's going on. And therefore, here in verse 2 and 3, he commends the church of Ephesus for a few things kind of three things generically that you see in these verses verse 2 and 3 first of all he commends them for being a very productive church for him they were a very productive church for Jesus he says in verse 2 I know your works your labor that's a Greek word that means to labor to the point of physical exhaustion and your patience so Ephesus again it was what you would say an active church right they were a church with a full bulletin and probably a really big website because they had to list all the ministries and i mean they were an active church jesus said i see you are laboring to the point of exhaustion lots of good ministry activity they were doing great works outreaches probably had different you know uh, ways to serve the community and the congregation they were laboring for the lord and being very productive for him and jesus says i see that and that pleases me I know your works and that you're laboring hard and that you're laboring to the point of exhaustion for me and that pleased Jesus Jesus wants us to be productive for him and he commends them for that so he commends them for being a very productive church a productive group of Christians not lazy pew potatoes but they were serving the Lord and active secondly he commends them in verse 2 because they upheld very high standards of purity they were a holy church upholding the standards of purity in both behavior and doctrine he says in verse 2 as well that you cannot bear those who are evil so again this was a church where they weren't tolerant of sin if there were evil things among them those things were exposed by the power of the Holy Spirit's presence among them and because they were people who loved purity sin was often brought to the surface by the Spirit of God's ministry happening through the church through the Word of God and the Spirit of God sin was exposed it was revealed it was repented of when people were doing evil things the church wouldn't tolerate it they they took a stand for righteousness Against sin, spoke out clearly about what was happening in the world. They they wouldn't just bear and tolerate what was evil. They weren't just sort of cooperating with the culture, but they took a stand for what was holy and what was right. He even said, verse two, "You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars." So again, you can see they didn't tolerate false doctrine. They 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 upheld purity in their doctrinal beliefs, in their behavior, in their morals. And again, Jesus, I think, was very pleased about that, that they upheld high standards of purity and they honored his presence because they believed it was his church and and he was the head of it. They wanted to make sure that he was honored and pleased in what they did and what they allowed among the atmosphere and the activities in their midst. Verse three, he then commends them there for being a group of people who persevered uh, in order to honor Jesus. He says there, you've persevered and have patience and look at it have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary so Jesus commends them how even when it was difficult they persevered because they said hey the honor of the Lord is important so even when they could have become weary and given up and just said it's too hard and everything's against us and we're not making progress or traction Jesus says no you persevered and notice they did it for his name's sake because they wanted to honor Jesus they remained faithful and they were devoted. Now, here you have this church, as I said, active church, productive church, a lot of great things going on at the church of Ephesus. They were a people who were devoted, they persevered, they were a holy church, they were a discerning church, they were doctrinally sound. I mean, a lot of great things happening among this church that Jesus is proud of, he commends them for, yet... Jesus cares about those things. He takes notice and appreciates them. Yet, as I said, they are not the most important thing to Jesus. They're not the central thing in the heart of our Lord because what Jesus cares about more than anything is intimacy, is relationship love relationship and that's why you read in verse 4 they're probably thinking alright commendation commendation and then that word comes can you imagine nevertheless uh oh <laughs> you know, that you always know what that nevertheless but again Jesus is honest and addresses things in our lives because he loves us he says nevertheless I have this against you that you have left your first love Jesus here in verse 4 gets right to the heart of the problem. It's almost as if he gives a diagnosis of what a lot of times in physical heart conditions, we talk about the silent killer, heart disease or heart attacks. Because a lot of times somebody can look like they're really in great health right outwardly, but then all of a sudden, boom, cardiac episode and they're gone. And much like I think this church, outwardly they look great. I mean, busy, active, productive, discerning, doctrinally sound, all these really great things. But Jesus says, but the thing that's not being seen under the surface that everybody's missing is in the midst of all that productivity spiritually, passion's missing. Passion for Christ has been lost. And in some ways, being productive for Christ has in some ways began to block out just personal passion. For Christ in the hearts of the people who were there in the midst of it. They were still going through the motions of the process of a Christian life, but they had forsaken passion for Christ. And notice that Jesus does not say there in verse four that that they had stopped loving him. He didn't say, you've stopped loving me. He just says, you've let the quality of your love towards me drastically diminish. He doesn't say there, you've lost your first love. He says, you've left your first love. Big difference. When you lose something, you don't know where to go back and find it, right? But when you've left something, it means that you've just, in a sense, walked away from it, but you can go back to it and regain it and get it back. Aren't aren't you glad? He says, you've left your first love, indicating you can come back to your first love if you do leave it that it's something that you can return to. It's not lost forever. It's something that you... And so so Jesus says, you've left your first love. Now, what is first love? Well, it's that initial passion or affection that we have for another person in a relationship. Best way we could probably illustrate it, and I think that's what Jesus is doing here, is it's the the dating love. It's the engagement love, the the honeymoon love that a man and a woman experience romantically. And again, the Bible pictures our relationship with Christ where he's a groom and we're the bride of Christ. So it's it's a beautiful analogy here. And this first love is a reference to that love of excitement and the passion that's there when two people are dating and they're falling in love. And you know, many of us perhaps have experienced that before. We see that going on around us when two people, they have that first love experience. They're filled with passion for one another. They're consumed with thoughts over each other. It's kind of that tunnel vision thing where all you think about is that person. You can't wait to get home from work so that you can go spend more time with that person. As soon as you have three minutes, you want to call that person or text that person. And and you just yearn for their companionship. You're consumed. You can't wait to be in their company. And you just want to spend every waking minute with them. And quite frankly, you enjoy spending every moment with them. You don't find it a duty, you don't find it an obligation. It's something that you do because you're desirous of and you find fulfillment in relationship with them. And, and you just, because of that, your world somewhat in that first love experience kind of just revolves right around that person. That's just kind of how it works. I think another way you could look at it is your first love is that person, because of your love and passion and excitement, they become first in your life that that's that dating love that honeymoon love that exists and and that's really what should exist with us in jesus it's a lot of times how it does begin with us in jesus for many of us when we first get saved at one point there's that real passion for jesus that love we first had maybe when we first got saved or we first met him or whatever yet it seems just like human relationships with romantic love You know, what can tend to happen is life progresses and you go into marriage and then the bills and the kids and the responsibilities. And then oftentimes, sometimes, you know, husbands and wives find themselves drifting from being lovers to just being business partners. And they go through all the mechanics still. They do all the same mechanical things and this and that. But those things begin to threaten the passion and the affection. And that kind of gets left behind and they're still functioning, right? They're, they're still doing all the things and pushing on the buttons and pulling the levers and doing the gears. And, and in some ways, they get more experience and, and they and they, they sort of mature in how all that works and everybody knows their roles. And a person's heart, even in marriage, listen, can be very diligently committed and, and very engaged, yet the desire grows cold and the passion grows cold and the enthusiasm grows cold and that can happen, and what the Bible is reminding us of here, and Jesus is addressing is that same thing can happen in our love relationship with Jesus, where we can be get somewhat mechanical spiritually, and we can still be doing the Christian uh, duties that we know we attend church, we read our Bible, we pray, we have a devotional life, you know we serve in this ministry in that ministry, and sometimes we can almost in a sense w- replace you know, passion with just trying to be so productive for Christ, we're finding our identity and our fulfillment spiritually, and I do this ministry and that ministry and this ministry and that ministry and this great. Do you ever worship? why do you do all that stuff? And and is that in some way like like a an unconscious subtle replacement for the fact of, of a dynamic of just passion and love for Jesus? I mean that was what drove that at first, right? That was why we wanted to serve the Lord so much but sometimes we can almost you know uh, allow those kind of things to overtake and that becomes almost a replacement to fulfill this thing that's missing between us and the lord on the vertical level uh, and jesus again he didn't save us you know he didn't save us to be a spiritual employee he saved us cuz he wanted a relationship with us he wanted a love relationship. He wants things to be relationally driven. He cares above all else that we have a measure of passion and devotion for him and loving enthusiasm. And labor does not replace love. Love and passion and excitement. And and, and again, this is so important. And I would just say tonight, what a great thing to evaluate our heart on occasions like this, especially as we think about celebrating communion, to kind of put a thermometer into our spiritual heart and say, tonight can you truly describe yourself as really in love with the lord and in such a way perhaps where maybe you could look back at other times in your spiritual life listen i understand maturity but be careful sometimes i think as christians almost as an excuse and justification for not wanting to deal with where our heart is I say, well, well, i'm just i'm just mature now Just like in marriage, you know, love grows deeper and uh, honeymoon stuff doesn't last forever. and, and, And we can almost use that as an excuse sometimes, I find in my life spiritually, as a way to not address the fact that, oh, I'm maturing, I'm maturing. Well, yeah, I understand we're maturing, but are we still passionate for Jesus? Is the fire of passion and enthusiasm still in our heart in that love for the Lord? And understand, if not, Jesus wants it there. He wa- and he cares about it, so much so that he says here, this is something I have against you. In a sense, he's saying, from my perspective, quite frankly, this at a point becomes sinful, where you've left that, and you've now sort of digressed into this condition of being mechanical spiritually, but yet there's that loss of passion and intimacy that was once there. And the reason I say it is sin, because look at verse five, Jesus says, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly, remove your lampstand. The idea is their witness. A lampstand gives light. They would lose the life and witness of their church from its place, again, unless you repent. So notice Jesus gives here a prescription For a heart condition that's lost its intimacy with him it hasn't been or left excuse me it hasn't been lost to where it can't be found again it's been left in a sense where it needs to be somewhat regained and he says look you can return to this experience and he says the way to do that in essence verse five there is sort of threefold he says this is the prescription first of all he says remember from where you've fallen remember he says hit the pause button Hit the pause button and and remember. Has there ever been a time when you remember when it was more intimate with you and Jesus? Where that passion was there? When prayer was something you did because you enjoyed praying? And reading your Bible was something you did because you were really excited that the Lord was going to say something to you? And and, and it wasn't a duty to do your devotions. It was a delightful, enjoyable thing to do your devotions. And, And it wasn't that you felt... Obligated to go to a worship service or a bible study because it 's kind of the Christian thing to do, and if i don 't go, people might notice i 'm not there, and they might think i 'm starting to backslide or you know and and, and you know, we find all these goofy things that begin to but you actually you couldn 't wait. You were probably one of those people I know I was one time I was just like we 're only having three meetings this week I mean, can 't we like four or five or something I mean I, if the doors are open i 'm there Could you open the doors and we 'll make up a meeting. <laughs> we'll find a reason they to get together to sing or to pray or to, and you just you know you, what was the centrality our life was so consumed with Jesus we wanted to be with Christians we, and, and, and if we can ever remember a time that we were in a different place Jesus says remember from where you look what they use the word fallen he says that's a fallen condition the idea is at one point we were living at a higher plane spiritually and Jesus says you've fallen from that return back to that spiritual peak where you once were. So he says, reflect, remember, think about what that used to be like and may that stir your heart then, he says, verse five, twice, he uses the word repent. The word repent means to change your mind in such a way where it changes your direction and your behavior. Metanoid is in the Greek. To have a change of mind and a change of perspective where you say, this mindset I've been living by is wrong. It's wrong. And so I'm changing my mind about this, and I'm going to change my mind in such a way where my perspective is so changed, I'm going to change my behavior to act accordingly, to act differently, to go from going east to going west, from north to going south. I'm going to repent, I'm going to change. So he says, repent, and again, reminding us that this is something to be repented of if it happens in our lives at times and he says go back to doing the first works there's the third thing remember repent and how do you repent start doing those first works again just like you rekindle a love relationship romantically as a husband wife you, you go back to doing some of those same things again it's amazing how love and intimacy can resurface again and it's the same spiritually He says re-engage, go back to those old ways and patterns again and watch the intimacy, the love, the passion begin to flourish again, the fire begin to return and that love for Jesus begin to blossom again in your life. Again, I can't emphasize enough here because it really struck my heart that Jesus uses the term repent over this. Here's why I say this and I just ask you to search your heart as we're worshiping this evening. A lot of times as Christians we get this idea repentance means well if I've done something really like grossly rotten you know I mean I went back to doing some gross behavior well that I got to repent of. And Jesus says look it's not just about a sin of action sometimes it's a sin of a heart attitude of a condition of an apathy spiritually or a, a disinterest spiritually or a lack of love towards Jesus with passion and enthusiasm and if that's not there Jesus says repent of that repent of that sin tell Jesus Lord I'm sorry you are worthy of much more love than I've been showing towards you and Lord I I ask you to forgive me that I want to repent of that and help my love for you to be where it ought to be let's bow our heads let's pray together